So, Kirtan. Hare Krishna, welcome everybody. Thank you for coming. Um,
So, is, could we close that door? Is there a Bhagavad Gita in the house? Is there a scriptural doctor in the house? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I could, yeah, that would be great. Could I use that? Yes. I, I promise to get it back to you, despite the reputation of my Christians. Oh. So, uh, this is Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita, and we are in chapter one. Where Arjun wants to see those he's going to fight against. And Arjun is overwhelmed by grief. He shows all these symptoms. He doesn't see how many good can come of fighting. So then Krishna says, uh, Arjuna says, in uh, chapter 1, text 32, Oh. So, chapter one. <laughs> Apparently, um, that's uh, marked up. Yes. Okay. I'll happily exchange for a, a mint condition. <laughs> <laughs> So, Arjuna says, King Norad Jaina Govinda. So, this is the way in Sanskrit you say, What's the use of? Literally, King like K Koneso. Especially, like, what with that? King Norad No means for us. No Sotros, that's where we get it. So, what for us, Govinda, with a kingdom? Like, what is the use? That's how you say, What is the use of a kingdom? King Norad Jaina Govinda, King Bogayar. And what with enjoyments, material enjoyments? Jivitenava, uh, <clears throat> or what's with life itself? So Arjuna is getting very depressed here. And, you know, when people get very depressed, they make extreme statements like that. Like, like what's the use of living? You know, what, what's the use of living? In King Jivitenava, what's the use of life itself? So these are not exactly rational rhetorical questions, but Arjun is, is in a very depressed, disturbed state. So what Arjun says is, what is the use of a kingdom? What is the use of material pleasures or life when the very people for whom we desire these things uh, such as kingdom, material enjoyments, pleasures. Taime, those very persons, not going to all this, grammar is really interesting, but I'm kind of controlling myself to give you the basic translation. So these very things, or, or actually these very people, these very people are situated, standing before us in battle. Pranans tyaktwa danani cha giving up their lives and their fortunes. So there's serious mistakes here in Arjun's uh, rhetorical question. For one thing, I, perhaps the most glaring mistake, which he himself admits later on when he comes to his senses, the most obvious mistake is he's saying that uh, the only reason we want a kingdom or material pleasures or enjoyments is for the sake of our relatives. Not exactly. I mean, for one thing, the reason one should desire to rule a country or to govern a country is for the good of the citizens. It's not that, yeah, you know, that's the reason we want a kingdom so we can show it off to our relatives and, you know, give them season tickets to the you know, the, I don't know, the Dodger games or something. I mean, I mean, the reason you want all these things is not just to please your relatives and, and you know, and all that. It's to actually help the world. Taking power in a country in order to, uh, you know, give pleasure to your personal family is really the wrong reason to be the leader of a country. 
although it's a very common reason nowadays. And so, and, and even the uh, even the reason we want, let's say, different pleasures, ultimately, if our goal in life is self-realization, as it should be, because what else could be the goal in life except, first of all, figuring out who the heck you are. And if you woke up one day, let's say you got amnesia, and well, never mind who I am, what's on TV? I mean, if you woke up one day with amnesia, obviously the first thing you'd want to do is figure out, who am I? So all of us are suffering at the present time from degrees of spiritual amnesia because we're actually eternal souls, which is very good news because if you're not an eternal soul, then you're a mortal human. First of all, being a human is not exactly prestigious if you look at the human race nowadays. And secondly, if we, if we are mortal, if we are mortal because we die, so no, no thanks, I don't want to live forever. Really, life is that bad for you? So the reason we want pleasures in this world is so that we can kind of work through our material desires and ultimately transcend them and understand that real happiness comes by loving God and other souls. So no, we don't seek material pleasures and stuff like that for our families. I mean, of course, if you have a family, try to help your family. That's, you know, that's just a basic duty. But in terms of the ultimate reason why we want these things is so we can actually work through these attachments and I'll come out the other end as pure souls. So our June has basically got everything wrong here in terms of the appropriate motives for basic human actions. So what else does he say? He says, and then, and then he, says, he, he says in general that, uh, you know, our relatives are here. Now he's going to go down the list. Like, and he says, the people standing in front of us wanting to kill us and we're trying to kill them. They include Matula, which means maternal uncle, Swasura, uh, brothers-in-law, potra, grandchildren, shala, uh, translated here, uh, brothers-in-law. Actually, the other one, um, fathers-in-law, I'm sorry, Swashura is fathers-in-law, technical terms. And the type of Pitama, and indeed also our grandfathers. Matula, Swasura, Potra, Shala, Samban, all these relatives. And then Arjun says very simply, it's a very simple Sanskrit, I don't want to kill them. It's very simple, direct Sanskrit. I don't want to kill them. I don't want to kill them, Krishna, even if they are killing me. So we're getting very uh, ethereal here. Because Arjuna is a warrior. And even if these bad guys who are ultimately supporting evil, even if they're killing me, I don't want to kill them. You know, lofty words, but not exactly rational. Considering the historical context, considering that Arjuna is supposed to be fighting for constitutional government against someone who breaks the laws and oppresses innocent people. He's fighting for justice. He's fighting for the right, for the good. And yet he's saying, well, even if these bad people are killing me, I don't want to kill them. So he's, I mean, what Krishna has given us here in the Bhagavad Gita through Arjuna is sort of a dramatic, unmistakable case of the dreaded bodily concept of life, as we call it in the Hare Krishna movement. And, um, and so it's really, so you could say, well, could anyone actually be that foolish? Yeah, most people. I mean, look at the leaders of the world. We don't have to name countries, but I'm sure you can think of a few. Where, uh, you know, people just, there's these very irrational totalitarian regimes. Or even in democratic America, the government does things that are just bizarre. You know, both sides of the aisle, as they say. So the fact that there's a lot of crazy governments uh, that I think is not controversial. So Arjuna has really reached that point where he's completely forgotten his duty, completely forgotten what's right and wrong, what justice is. And then he says, Api Trilokya, 
rajasya heto even for the purpose of getting a raja a kingdom of the three worlds because just like basically economically there's upper class middle class and lower class so uh, in the universe there are actually upper class planets middle class planets and lower class planets and right now we have the uh, honor and pleasure of living on a lower middle class planet so if you want to know where you are Vedic cosmology. So, um, so he says, even he said, why should I fight to get an earthly kingdom, even if if I was fighting for you know to, to rule the universe, I wouldn't want to do it. So he says, Abhitrai Lokya Rajasya Hito Kingumahikrite. What not to speak of just for the sake of this earth. And then he says, Nihatya Dharatarastrana, slaying the sons of Dhritarashtra, his first cousins. Ka pritiksya janardana. What priti, what pleasure could there be? Janardana Krishna. So that's his dramatic but not completely well thought out statement. And then, uh, and then he has more to say on this. He's not done. Then Arjuna says, uh, sin would overtake us, literally. Sin would overtake us. And uh, uh, killing these aggressors. So Arjuna here says something which is really self-contradictory. Because atataina, this is translated here, aggressors, literally means one who like raises a weapon against you. So Ar Arjun says that killing these aggressors, sin would overcome us. Since when? Let's say, for example, I mean, just recently there was this case in, um, I think it's called uh, Greenland or Greenville, uh, Indiana. Honk if you like that. It's actually a nice town. It's actually uh, if you're coming from, you're coming from Indiana. It's really a nice state, despite its image in California. Um, if you're coming from Bloomington, Indiana, which is this great college town, the University of Indiana, and then just just before you get into Indianapolis, there's this town. So they have a big mall, you know, the typical mall with the Apple Store and the, you know all the things, the big mall. And some guy just uh, started shooting people. And so it turned out there was one good Samaritan there who had a legal weapon. He had a license to carry it. And he pulled out his gun and, and, and killed this person before, who, who had planned to kill a lot of people. I mean, his, his intention was clearly to kill a lot of people. He actually killed one Hispanic couple. And uh, then this guy with a legal weapon pulled out his gun and killed him. Everyone hailed him as a hero. Everyone. You know, this guy's a hero. He saved so many innocent lives. So here are Judas saying that these people are aggressors, and yet if I kill them, it would be a sin. That makes no sense at all. That makes no sense at all. So anyway, let's go on to what else Arjuna's going to say here. Tasman narha vayanhantum. Therefore, it's not right for us to kill Dharjarastra, the sons of Dhritarashtra, Sabandavan, with their friends and relatives. It's not right for us to do this. Sajalanghi katamnatwa sukhinatsyamamadava. Which means uh, killing our own people, Swajana. Uh, how could we be happy, Madhava? So it literally says, Swajalanghi katamnatwa sukhinatsyamamadava. And then, and he's, he's, again, he has more to say on this topic. He says, even if, in Sanskrit you say, if even, if even they do not see, even if they don't see, because their minds are, are just struck by greed, because they want to win a battle and gain a kingdom, even if, if, if because their minds are sort of just struck by greed, they don't see it. 
They don't see the Kulak Saikritang Dosham, the, the mistake, the fault of uh, causing the destruction of a family. Because as I explained earlier, generally when you have a system of monarchy in a particular region of the world, because royalty, at least in the past, uh, would marry royalty, that's kind of no longer the case, but because royalty would marry royalty, therefore, you know, after many generations, basically all the royalty was related to all the royalty. Everyone was related. And that was certainly the case in Europe for many centuries. So Arjuna is saying, uh, <coughs> even if because their minds are overcome with greed, overcome by greed, so even if they don't see the mistake of causing the destruction of the family or community, Kula, like Guru Kula, the Guru's community, his family. So Kula means family or community. Mita they don't see the, the evil of, of violence against friends. The word for patakam uh, uh, is translated here uh, as sinful reaction. It's interesting, the word patakam literally means something that makes you fall. Because the verb pata, like patita pavana, saving the fallen. So pata come, without going into all the grammar here, it just means something that brings you down, that makes you fall into a lower state of existence. And so that's a word which is translated here as a sinful reaction. So katan na geyamasmabi papadasmani vartatum. How can that which we understand, we know it, even if these fools, you know, who we love so much, you know, these dear relatives who have been raping and killing for about, you know, several decades. So even if they don't know these things, how can the knowledge that we have, because we do understand it, how can that not restrain us from this sin? They're ignorant, but we are not ignorant. So why doesn't that knowledge, I'm, I'm translating very literally, why doesn't that knowledge restrain us from sin? And then he says, uh, causing the destruction of a family or extended family is a mistake. Sort of emphatic here. For those who actually can see clearly. So Arjun is a very interesting argument, isn't it? We understand we can see clearly therefore he's almost saying that ignorance is not you know full uh excuse for committing a bad activity but okay they don't understand it they don't see and so they're acting in this horrible way but we do see we understand it so why shouldn't that knowledge stop us literally from fighting interesting argument isn't it not a valid one but it's interesting So then Arjuna says, Kuluk Shayi Now he's going to explain all the, what do they call it now? Knock-on effects. That's the, you know, the latest term. Um, because what Arjuna is going to argue now is that if we kill these people, it will unleash a chain reaction that will cause all kinds of other evils. So it's not just the evil of killing our family members, but it's all the it's the chain reaction. It's all the further consequences. And so now he's going to describe those further consequences. He says, Kulak with the destruction of the family, Pranashanti Kuladharma Sanatana, that the family or community dharmas, perpetual, Sanatana Dharma, here the word Sanatana not used in the literal sense of eternal dharma of the soul. But that means perennial, like something you always do, like generation after generation. It's something which is, you know, continuous and perpetual. So, I mean, the very concept of Kula Dharma is interesting. Because in America, of course, anyway, I won't get into my critique of America. It's like, it's like taking candy from a baby, but... <laughs> There are many reasons why society, and I'm, I'm not going to quibble here whether you know it should be enforced legally or simply by good customs, las buenas costumbres. 
you know, whether it's to be enforced by good customs or, or social pressure, or there should actually be laws, I won't, that's a whole other discussion. But however it's established, having stable families that stay together, uh, society has a rational vested interest in that happening. I mean, this is all the science. The science is that people that come from good, stable families are much less likely to commit suicide, much less likely to engage in antisocial behavior and end up in prison, much less likely to be poor, much less likely to have emotional problems. And so if a particular behavior not always, not in every case, obviously, there are many exceptions, but it's more likely that people engage in antisocial behavior than society has a rational vested interest in promoting strong families. And, uh, and families have dharmas. Nowadays, of course, we live in a very degraded age. For one thing, the Industrial Revolution, among its other trophies, uh, destroyed the extended family. You know, th there was a time when, if you lived in a village, and there was a time when, you know, almost everybody did live in villages. And you can see this, actually, one time I flew over northern Italy, fairly low, it was a, for a small plane, and I wasn't going very far, and so, we, and so I could really see, because, of course, Italy's very ancient culture, so I could just see visually what the traditional ancient civilization was. Because whereas if you look at all the cities that are designed or even neighborhoods and cities that are designed after the proliferation of motorized vehicles, then the typical uh, city planning is um, a grid, like vertical and horizontal. Because if you're driving, that's practical. Whereas like you fly over Northern Italy or even older parts of America, you see there's a sense, it's, it's the hub and spokes model of, of human development where you have uh, let's say people lived in a little agricultural village, and then all around that village, there were farm fields going out and radii. And so, why did you just bring that up? So anyway, so up until the Industrial Revolution, most people lived in that way, and they had extended families. Very interesting, it's economic pressure. One of the few cases where Karl Marx got something right, and that is, if you live out in the country, let's say in farmland, then large families are economically uh, to your advantage. Because if you've, ever, if you've ever lived on a farm, there's always work to do. And so if you live on a farm, the bigger your family, the more prosperous you are, the more land you can cultivate. And assuming that in every parcel of land, it's big, you know, over a certain size, you produce what you need, plus you produce surplus for trade, so the more people you have in your family, the more prosperous you are. With the Industrial Revolution, everyone moving to cities became just the opposite. The bigger your family, the poorer you are. And so, so therefore, what we're talking about here, if we look at uh, pre-industrial civilization, is that families were communities in themselves. Even, let's say, 200 years ago in England, uh, in some extent still, um, a, uh, when, when a man and woman are getting married, it was referred to very commonly as an alliance between two communities. And that's why they were so concerned about what community you come from. And in fact, in, uh, in Brazil, who's here from Brazil? Can't believe no, Anyway, a wedding ring or an engagement is still called an alianza, an alliance. So, and, and this is relevant, of course, so I think rather than just kind of read quickly through these verses and get to the nectar verses, uh, this really is uh, socio-historical socio nectar here. Because Arjuna is talking about Kula Dharma, community duties, community duties. And when communities stick together, uh, these religious and spiritual and, and even, you could say, humanitarian duties are preserved. I know, given the age I grew up in, you know, I 
there are very few. I mean, my tendency when I got to a certain age was not to do anything my parents did, because like, you know, you never do that. Like, what? You're doing what your parents did? And so, you know, Mark Twain said, he said, when I was, you know, young guy, I left home because my parents were totally clueless, didn't understand anything. Came back several years later and I was amazed at how much they'd learned in my absence. <laughs> So, so I don't want to get into all the details or all the exceptions. I'm just going to make general statements, fully aware that, you know, we could have lots of discussions on this, but that basically a society that wants to be civilized, that wants to be moral, has a vested interest in good, strong families. And that's what Arjun is concerned about. And by the way, society has legitimate vested interest. Because think of the American Revolution, where the battle cry, at least in Boston, was like no taxation without representation. Because according to English common law in England at the time, regular people, farmers and you know, families, they had a right to elect members of parliament. And they even locally, they had some say in the taxes imposed upon them. And so, the basic complaint of the revolutionaries was that although they were English citizens, their basic argument was based on the fact that they were English citizens, but they were being denied the rights of English citizens. And so the reason I mentioned that is that if we as a society are affected, sometimes violently, by certain types of irresponsible reproduction. How can you, this is a legal question, how can you characterize as entirely pri private an activity that has dramatic social consequences? Because the battle cry was no taxation without representation. You can't tax us because you're not giving us the, the right, which we have as Englishmen and women, to, to elect representatives. It's like, for example, let's say you own a little piece of land and, and let's say a river goes through your land and upstream, you know, property or two above you, there's someone who throws pollutants into the river. And those, and that polluted river comes down to you, poisons whatever animals you have, makes the river water uh, unsuitable for drinking and so on and so on and so on. So the person who's polluting the river can say, well, it's my property. I can do what I want on my property. Well, no, you can't because what you're doing on your property has major consequences for people on other properties. And so the basic rule of law is that if you do something which strongly affects other people, then that activity has to be regulated so that you don't have a powerful negative impact on innocent people. And since irresponsible reproduction, irresponsible reproduction uh, dramatically impacts society. Many people every year lose their lives, are murdered because of irresponsible reproduction. These are real facts. You know, I don't, I don't know you know, what's politically correct nowadays, but, you know, we want to kind of, you know, lobotomize, lobotomize ourselves and get into that. But um, the, the point is that um, many, many people every year are killed. In fact, if you look at serial killers, if you look at these, you know, these people that kill a lot of people, if you look at heavy racists, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, the bottom feeders of the country. If you look at these people, in many, many cases, they come from very unpleasant family situations. So, you know, people like us, innocent people every day in this country are dying because of irresponsible reproduction. Now, the simple question, according to the you know, logic, simple moral logic, if you do something 
which threatens to cause significant harm to innocent people, is can that be an entirely private activity? And if someone says it is, then, then how do you even define and what's the difference? Just so I throw that out. Because Arjun is not just sort of like hopelessly old fashioned, or this was a conservative society, or not even worse, a patriarchy. It was, um, which it actually wasn't in a sense. So, you know, very few people have the power to actually get outside their century or get outside their half century, whatever, and just sort of look at things objectively. Hegel talked about this, the philosopher of history. He said one of the big problems with people is that um, they just they, they assume that everything about their society is better and they, they just don't have the power to see that some things in the past were better than some things in the present. And so, um, so Arjun's argument here is not frivolous. It's actually, it's scientific. It's scientific and uh, it's a serious argument. Although ultimately it's not a valid one in this context, but he's not raising principles that would not have any merit in any context. Arjun found himself here in a very special situation, a, a, a really a, a pivotal point, a turning point in history. And therefore Arjun's arguments could have had some validity under normal circumstances. But considering the special circumstances that he's in, his arguments are really missing the point. So, um, so Arjun says, Kula Kshaye Pranashyanti, Kula Dharma Sanatana. So the perennial dharmas, duties, and also the word dharma means justice, so duties that bring about justice. Uh, the, uh, duties and dharmas that are sustained within families. Because back then they didn't have these giant governmental bureaucracies. I mean, you have to really have the power to think your way back into a pre-industrial world. Life was very different in many ways. Human relationships were very different. Lots of things were very different when the world was actually natural. And, and so you have, to, you have to have the power to think your way back into that world. But so to give an example of community duties, just one more example, because I'm sort of defending not that Arjun is making a good point here, but that under other circumstances, with the Industrial Revolution, people started moving to cities in huge numbers. And there was no such thing as social welfare. There was no such thing as government programs to help the poor or government programs to provide medical assistance. Why? Because governments were much smaller. Governments were very small. And if you look, so what was the system? The system was, which you can, you can see clearly, again, England, so I know more about it, that's my reading. Um, in every, let's say, area, in every region, say a village, let's say an agricultural village or a small town, a lot of people living all around there. And so there was one uh, family where the man was called the squire. The squire was basically the richest person, the richest family in, in the area, and or one of the richest families. And uh, it was their duty, it was their moral duty to personally feed the poor. For example, there's a very famous novel by Jane Austen called Emma, where um, the heroine of the story, through a 20 year old beautiful girl named Emma, and uh, the Woodhouse family, and so her father is the squire, he's the richest man in their area. And so she, being this beautiful, rich girl, very clever, she personally goes and feeds the poor. It's not like it's been either. I mean, how many of us go regularly to very low-class areas? She personally goes and she feeds the poor. And, you know, they have some other needs. They need medicine. In Pride and Prejudice, you find Lady Catherine de Bourgh, a titled 
you know, lady. She's like, you know, a titled lady, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, also richest in her area, very snobby, very snotty. And yet, if anyone in the surrounding villages is too poor or there's some other problem, she personally goes and gives them what they need. No one is allowed to starve. No one is allowed to go without basic necessities. And this was done by noble families. And if they didn't do it, their reputation would be ruined. So there was tremendous social pressure. Because again, this was, you know, quote unquote, Christian society. So there was tremendous social pressure to take care of the people. And what you find is that this was actually done. Now, so you have a system. There is a system of taking care of the poor, taking care of the needy. But then in historical terms, in this like lightning fast change, everyone's moving to the cities and, the, and, and government is very tiny. Governments have been constructed to deal with basically an agricultural society with a few trading villages, you know, cities, a few cities for trade. And so people are moving to the cities. There are no government programs. And you start to get really terrible suffering, which, by the way, is described by some of the activists of the time, including Charles Dickens. I mean, I mean, A Christmas Carol. I hope you've all seen A Christmas Carol. Please tell me you've all seen A Christmas Carol. Anyway, so, so in A Christmas Carol, Scrooge is, you know, Scrooge. That's where you get the name Scrooge. And so he's approached by these gentlemen, two or three gentlemen, who want him to give money for the poor. And Scrooge says, why? You know, the poor house is closed? It, and so they say, no, but the conditions of these poor houses are so miserable and so humiliating, so terrible, that, you know, some people would rather die than go to those poor houses. And so then Scrooge very blithely says, well, let them die. He said, that will reduce the excess population of the world. And by the way, in saying that will reduce the excess population of the world, he's actually, of course, Dickens wrote the book to fight against this idea. But he's actually giving a philosophy which was prominent back then among many people. Malthusian economics, kind of based on Darwinism. Because if any particular species is strengthened, becomes more robust by the survival of the fittest, which zoologically is true, it's even true in forests. For example, when I went to British Columbia years ago and I was being shown around these great Douglas fir forests and, and people who were explaining things said the forests are actually getting sick and weak because the government puts out forest fires and prevents forest fires because forest fires actually keep a forest very robust and only the hardiest specimens survive. So if you take Darwinism seriously, then, then Scrooge is right. It's better that poor people starve to death, that people in debtor's prison just somehow maybe throw themselves into the English Channel or something. And we have a physically hardy race of humans. But of course, that would be evil. And that's what Dickens is saying. That would be monstrous. So again, the picture you get in A Christmas Carol, other books by Dickens, books by other authors, is a picture of cities where urbanization, industrialization is taking place so quickly that governments have not caught up because they're very traditional. The government has been a certain way for like a thousand years. There's an incredible amount of psychological momentum. You know, it's hard to suddenly change things you've done for a thousand years. But that's what he's talking about. I mentioned that because, again, the responsibility of people, princes like Arjun or just other people to take care of the needy, that's part of Kula Dharma. That's part of, Arjuna is not simply worried about rituals falling by the wayside, you know, ringing bells and all that. He's talking about this kind of thing. So, 
again, uh, if we're able to analyze things carefully, it becomes more interesting. And in fact, because he says Kula Dharma, but the government is a Kula. You find in the Bhagavatam the term Raja Kula, the royal community. The royal community. And so if we're talking about Kula Dharma, we're also talking about the duties of the Raja Kula to make sure that no one in a country goes hungry, no one suffers injustice, every person who's sick receives good medical attention. So again, Arjun's concerns are not entirely frivolous. They're not entirely frivolous. But in the special situation in which he finds himself, they're not really relevant. Because first of all, it's, he's not going, the, the war is not going to annihilate the royal class and the evil of not fighting would actually be greater. But still, I'm trying to give you some idea of what's going on here. So, moving right along. So then Arjuna says at the end of last line of 39, last two lines, Dharma stay, which is lock of absolute. When Dharma is lost, when Dharma is destroyed, Dharma stay, Kulan Krishna, the entire community, Adharma Bhavivati Uta. That Adharma, injustice, overcomes the entire community. If the Kula Dharmas are lost. And so, oops, uh, let's see what time it is. I'm just going to keep talking until I get paid. Um, <laughs> okay, it's, actually, I'm going to stop here because text 40 and 41 gets into the role of women. No controversy there. <laughs> and, so, um, and it's, it's especially interesting. Because Arjun is going to say something about, he's concerned about the women. He's actually concerned about what will happen to the women. And, uh, and his concerns are very interesting, especially if we compare them with modern conceptions of women. So that's going to be a very interesting discussion. And I will conscientiously wear a bulletproof vest. <laughs> <laughs> So, any questions on these points? Yes, please. Um, thank you for being here, Crystal. Um, this is the first time I've, I've um, met you, and so thank you for... Oh, thank you. What's your name? Yeah, um, Jacqueline. Jacqueline, pleasure to meet you. Um, so you talk a lot about the Industrial Revolution, but I wanted to know... Um, are there a lot of pieces there also critiquing the agricultural revolution? Mm. Yeah, good point. I'll just briefly mention that. The agricultural revolution, basically, and this is uh, another, actually, one of those amazing times when Marx got something right. Marx talks about um, basically saying how the way in which a society feeds itself and protects itself and just secures other basic needs like shelter and clothing and you know all that. That the way in which it does that um, determines to a large extent the types of political and social structures that manifest in that society. And just to give a simple obvious example, perhaps the simplest form, the simplest way in which people get their basic needs is hunting and gathering. Where you hunt, you know, shoot poor animals, and um, and gather, you know, glean berries and nuts and edible leaves and things like that. And so, the nature of hunting and gathering is that you can't have a large community because if you go into, say, a particular valley, because water tends to flow down, doesn't always flows down. Water flows down. And so therefore, valleys tend to be 
very green and have a lot of light because all because the valley means you know, there's hills on both sides and the water all flows down into the valley floor. And so um, that's where you get a lot of food, whether you're an animal or a human in valleys. And so um, if you go into a valley and you're hunting and gathering, there's only so many animals in the valley you can hunt. And there's only so many trees. And within a pretty short time, you're going to kind of strip that valley of its, of its food. You don't have to wait till it grows back. And so you got to go to the next valley. Therefore, hunters and gatherers are always at least semi-nomadic. They're semi-nomadic. They have to keep moving around to let things grow back, to let the animal population, uh, you know, replenish itself. And um, there's not that much food. So you don't get large-scale societies. You get smalls, hunting, gathering, tribes or whatever you want to call them tend to be very small. One result of having a small community is that you can't have a big division of labor. In other words, okay, I just want to, I'm an artist and, or I just want to meditate. You know, you, know, you can't do that in a small community because it's like all hands on deck. It's the nature of small communities that everyone has to pitch in and do a lot of things. But let's say you get a larger community. Let's say you get a community with 200 people, you know, then, okay, maybe you can afford to have an artist, like a full-time artist, or people who are just teachers. Here's an example from Denver, Colorado. When Denver was just a small frontier town, uh, in, in the entire settlement of Denver, which maybe is a small city, just a town, there was one teacher for the whole town. because they just, there weren't enough people and they were fighting to survive. There weren't enough people to have someone just, and, and, and it wasn't until years later they had their first yoga teacher. <laughs> so, um, so now we get to the agrarian revolution. The point is when you hunt and gather, you know, meat, they didn't carry around little portable refrigerators in their backs or, or ice boxes. And so the food spoils quickly. You know, you can't preserve, you can't carry a lot of food because we want to, when you run out of food in one valley, you can't just carry big boxes of food. The meat doesn't keep. And so therefore, when you start agriculture, you can grow food in quantity. You can grow grains and grains last forever. Based. I mean, they found grains. Archaeologists have found grains, let's say in the Indus Valley civilization, which are like eight, they're 9,000 years old, and they're still edible. So grains, you know, under proper conditions, very dry, obviously, with mold and everything, but in that part of the world is very dry. So if you have the proper climate and, and all that, uh, grains will literally last thousands of years. So what you can do is you can produce large amounts of grain, store the grain, and as we know, through organized agriculture, the people producing the food can produce food for thousands of times more people than themselves. Whereas hunter-gatherers, it's kind of like, you know, everyone get your own squirrel or something. <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, unkind to squirrels. I really like squirrels. But um, so therefore, two things change. Number one, you can produce food that can be stored forever. Number two, the ratio between the number of people producing the food and the number of people who are fed by it changes dramatically. So therefore, it's not until you have the agrarian revolution you can have cities, even small cities. And once you have that and you have more people, then you start to get the division of labor. People start to specialize because, okay, we have specialized farmers. We have specialized people that govern. We have specialized people that defend the innocent. We have specialized artisans. We have specialized poets. And so it's only when you have this agrarian revolution that you actually get division of labor, you get specialization, and society really starts to advance. You start to get artistic traditions, literary traditions, philosophical traditions, religious traditions. Religious, I mean, every community is religious. Human beings are just religious by nature, even when they're uh, atheistic humanists. They're very religious and dogmatic. But anyway, um, so you start to get, you know, organized everything. 
whether it's religion, whether it's guilds, you know, like, uh, you know, the artisans guild or the, or whatever it is, metallurgy, you start to get, you know, people that specialize just in metal works and, and just everything starts to happen. So that's the agrarian revolution. But then you get the industrial revolution, it changes everything again. And in many ways, not for the better. And so, and so now, uh, it's just like, for example, take the rise of the internet. The rise of the internet kind of had the same relationship to government control as the rise of cities in the sense that the internet rose so quickly and proliferated, you know, so widely that you just didn't have government regulation. So people could do all kinds of evil things on the internet, whether it was, you know, child pornography or just, you know, trying to, you know, or, or, or trying to set people up for murder. I mean, all kinds of things. And so whenever you have a sudden new technology that spreads widely, governments typically lag behind and then have to catch up. And, and, and that's what happened with the Industrial Revolution. It's happened with what happened with the Digital Revolution. Anyway, it's a little information. I hope that answered your question. Yes. Thank you for the information about the agricultural revolution transitioning into the Industrial Revolution. I'm curious what information we have about the transition from Dwarpa Yuga to Kali Yuga, because the, the narrative we learned in school is that the agricultural revolution was 10,000 years ago, and we just barely have some information about the Indus River Valley civilization 5,000 years ago. So what information do we have on that transition period where supposedly 10,000 years ago the agricultural revolution began? Okay. Hmm. Kumi, I'm going to let Kumi answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> she kind of specializes in this. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, the most of the information we have about day-to-day -day life and Vedic culture comes from Mahabharata and some extent from the Bhagavatam. And that's well within the horizon of the agrarian revolution. That's about 5,000 years ago. So there's no problem there. Now, interestingly, there is a particular incarnation of Christian avatar named Prithu, uh, who was a king and who, according to the Bhagavatam, kind of fostered an agrarian revolution. So there's actually a particular avatar associated with the Korean Revolution, Prithu. And it's even said that he kind of, you know, he leveled the earth for it because you need, even if you do terraces and hills, you've got to have level surfaces to do agriculture. Agriculture requires, otherwise, how do you irrigate it, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, so Prithu Maharaj, and, you know, he might have appeared around 10,000 years ago. That's not a bad bet, if, if I was a betting man. So, um, yeah, so the Bhagavatam does describe the agrarian revolution. That's in the fourth canto. You can look up the story of Prithu. And Indra does the, the clearing of the hills, right? Indra, of course, you know, provides irrigation. Indra clears the hills. Where did that come from? I thought maybe he, he struck the mountains at, like, Prithu's Oh, request. if you can find a particular statement in, in the Bhagavatam, I'm happy to take a look at it. Uh, yeah, I'll have to go back. So, any other question? If not, to quote Elvis, you've been a great audience. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Kumi, our hostess. Thank you, thank you very much. Let me figure out how to turn this thing up. Oh, it's just this little, should I turn this thing up? Sure. Uh, bye bye everybody out there online. <laughs>